So time and time again, you'll see these iconic songwriters talking about writing their most iconic and influential songs, whether it's you know, gospel music or praise or secular music. Secular music, I like to put that in quotes. And so often they have the same sort of story, which is they were just there to receive the song. They were just there. And I, far be it for me to put any sort of words in the mouth of the great songwriter John Hyatt, whose song we're about to play, but I think that maybe God did. When the rug is dark And you can no longer see Just let my love throw a spark now, child Have a little faith in me When the tears you cry Oh, you can believe Just give my loving arms a try now, child Have a little faith in me 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 oh. Have a little faith in me Come on. When your secret heart Cannot speak so From a whisper start to Have a little faith in me And when your back's against the wall
I think we need to say thank you one more time. That was unbelievable. Wow. Mm, something about it. Have a little faith in me. You know, this is God's invitation to you and to me, to everyone, to have faith in him, to believe in, to follow, to, to engage in actual relationship with God himself. It, it really is it really is staggering if you stop and consider the gravity of that invitation. The fact that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords wants to engage with us in relationship. This, this invitation that just blows our minds. But you know, the invitation begs an implicit question. There, there's a question embedded in the in the invitation, if, if faith is, is the thing to, to follow God, have faith in God, how? How does faith work? How, do, how, do, how does faith work itself out? If we're talking about having faith in a perfect, holy God, how does that work out in a fallen, imperfect world that we inhabit? And that's going to be our focus over the next few weeks as we dive into this new teaching series, Faith Works. And I want you to know that from the very, very beginning, we start with the assumption that faith does, in fact, work. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and with passion and enthusiasm, kind of sit up straight, take a deep breath, smile on your face, tell them, faith works. Faith works. Faith works. You know, I remember one summer when I was in college, I was back home in Houston working at my home church, and this particular summer, I was working the grounds crew. We were responsible for mowing and edging the, the gardens and the lawns there at Second Baptist, and we would unload boxes when they came in for shipment. We would do repair work around the campus. I remember one day in particular standing in a trench. I, I learned that ministry takes on a lot of different roles as we stood in this trench repairing a sewage line that had backed up into one of the buildings. But I remember one morning in particular, I was mowing the grass at Second Baptist Church, and it was one of those horrific Houston mornings. It's over 90 degrees before 10 a.m. Humidity is about at 104, 105%. And one of my best friends, Jeff Yates, pulled up in a car to say hi. And when I saw that it was Jeff and he was in this car, I, I turned off the lawnmower and he rolled down his window, just to, enough to be heard, not enough to let into the air conditioning escape. And he said, how's it going? Now, for you to get the full weight of this moment, you need to understand that Jeff, in this particular summer, was working for his girlfriend's dad, who was in real estate there in Houston. And so Jeff was essentially driving around town delivering documents in his boss's Porsche. 
And so when he stopped to say hi to his buddy Mac, there was a part of me, I was really, really glad to see Jeff, and there was another part of me that wanted to reach through the window and choke him out. (laughs) But you know, I've learned something since that day with the benefit of hindsight and more than a couple of years. And, And I've had the experience to see how faith works out, how faith plays out in this world. And I've, I've come to discover that in God's economy, because of the gospel, because of who Jesus Christ is and invites us to be with him in relationship, there is actually not a single solitary speck of difference between delivering documents in a foreign sports car or mowing the grass in 104% humidity in Houston. In God's economy, because of who he is and because of his amazing grace, all work, all work can in fact be endowed with divine dignity, with eternal significance, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter who you are. You may be a doctor, you may be a ditch digger, You could be a mom, you could be a mall cop, you could be a lawyer or a lobbyist. No, seriously. And all work can, in God's economy, have divine dignity and eternal significance. This is what we're after over the next few weeks because the fact of the matter is all of us work. We we all have a work ethic. Now, When we talk about work ethic, usually we're talking about how hard somebody does or does not work. But a work ethic is something that every single one of us has. God has a work ethic. It's our opportunity, it's our privilege and our blessing to discover God's work ethic and then to appropriate it as our own and use it where we live. One of the things that I'm so excited about this series is for what it will do for students I just think if I had had an understanding of God's work ethic when I was in middle school or high school or even college, how different my educational career and perspective would have been. Now, I have to tell you this. Even if I had God's work work ethic when I was in, say, 10th grade, I still would have had to go to biology and algebra too. Those things were not going to change because I learned something about who God was. But what would change is the perspective on those things, the perspective that gives us a peace that passes all perception, the perspective of God that gives purpose to our work no matter what we do. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, just three little verses in the New Testament are really foundational to a gospel-driven, God-given work ethic. A God-given work ethic is rooted in this passage. And I want to encourage you to memorize Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is one of those pillar passages of the Bible that we need to memorize, not just so we have it in, in our memory bank, but so that we can spiritually metabolize the Word of God, so that we can own it. This is, this is steak for the soul. This is fiber for the fabric of who we are in God's economy, who He's created us to be. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has already prepared in advance for us to do. This is, this is God forming and fashioning and shaping a biblical work ethic, something that, that goes to the core of who we are. Here's the thing that you need to understand about work. It's a part of what it means to be human. Think about, go back to Genesis chapter one and two. Genesis one and two, before sin enters the picture in Genesis three, you have Adam and Eve created by God as his crowning achievement in creation, humanity. Now all of creation bears the imprint of God's character and his personality, but it is only people, only people like you and me who are created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Male and female. Can you imagine a world in which only men carried the image of God? I mean, that's just, that's just a horrible thought, isn't it? To think, I mean, that would be a most inadequate image of God if it was only in men. He gave us male and female. Male and female is not arbitrary. Male and female is the intentional design and desire of God to bear his image in the world. It is not a social construct. Male and female is the will of God. So when he made you as a guy, thank God. When he made you as a girl, thank God and bear that image as he designed you to bear that image. That's part of the mystery and the miracle of creation. And it is in creation that God created us to work. You're created to work. I'm created to work. We know this because we're created in the image of God. What's the first thing that we learn about God in the Bible? Genesis chapter one, verse one. You know it. Say it with me. In the beginning, God Come on, you know it. Say it like you know it. Somebody like, yeah. In the beginning, God created. Exactly. I knew you knew it. He created. If you have ever created anything, you have worked. I, I think about a chef who, who creates a meal or a menu that people want to be a part of. That is hard work. If you've ever known anyone in the restaurant business, they work their heads off. I think about songwriters like, like John Hyatt who wrote that song, Have a Little Faith in Me. I, I think about, what about moms? If, if, if you've ever had a child, you created life. In, now, you had some help, very little, but you created life with your body. Creating is hard work. God created everything out of nothing. The theologians use the term ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing there, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created you, he created me, he created people for relationship. He created us with this invitation to have a little faith in him, to engage with him in reality. And because we're created in the image of God, we're created to work. We're created to have that faith in him work itself out in this world. So when we talk about a biblical work ethic, you know, the, the word ethic, I, I love how the dictionary defines ethic. An ethic or ethics 
is a set of moral principles, a theory, or a system of moral values. So everybody has a work ethic. You have a work ethic, I've got a work ethic, all of God's children got a work ethic. It's just a determination about whether or not it's intentional. Is your work ethic by design or is it just by default? Is it just kind of how you go, th- go along to get along or have you really thought about what it means to work? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 sets it up for us. It says that God has given us this gift called grace. Grace, that means it is the, the unmerited, undeserved, unearnable favor of God. That is a staggering gift. To understand that the forgiveness of God is something you can't earn. I can't earn it. You will never do enough good things to earn God's favor. He's already given it as a free gift. That ought to be absolutely liberating. The problem is, especially for those of us from America, we, we, like, to, we like to think we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're, we're, we're the land of opportunity, the land of the self-made man, the self-made woman. The truth, ladies and gentlemen, is that there is no such thing. You have been given the grace of God just by being given life. That ought to just knock you out of your seat this morning. When you think about the fact that God gave you life. It's one thing to think God created everything. Whoa, that's cool. But then to, let's make that really, really particular. He made me. The Bible says he knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. I like to say he knows the number of hairs that used to be on your head. That's how much he loves you. That's how deliberate and intentional he is. And he's given you this invitation to grace. And it is grace that is the bedrock foundational fact of our work ethic. To understand that it's a gift from God, it is by grace, through faith, our believing in God, our choosing to trust and believe in him more than we trust and believe in ourselves, And through faith, we are given the forgiveness of our sins. We are given this engagement, this relationship with God. So so grace is is the foundational fact of a biblical, gospel-driven, God-given work ethic. But I think it's important for us to have a working definition as we launch this series together, as we go into this and, and kind of do a deep dive over the next few weeks When we talk about a work ethic, what does that really and truly mean according to Scripture? Well, this is is something I think you can write down, something you can come back to over and over again. A biblical work ethic means that you are working for and with God in everything we do. We are working for and with God in everything we do. So grace is where it all begins. Grace precedes faith, which produces work. We we don't work so that God will give us grace. God has given us grace. Remember, it's unmerited, undeserved, unearnable favor of God. But because of his grace, man, then 
we are given faith, and it is because of the faith that God gives us that we decide to reciprocate and go work for God and with God. Now, I know when I first say working with God, for some of you, that may sound like a foreign concept. I had a conversation not too long ago with a, a really close friend of mine. The guy's a committed Christian. He goes, Mac, I just don't, I just don't feel like what I'm doing is moving the needle spiritually. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to go you know, be a missionary or be a pastor like you, but I just, I don't know that what I'm doing matters in the grand scheme of things. I said, no, hold on a minute. Let, let's, let's, let's think about that together. Let's, let's just start with your family. Because you get up and go to work every day and you, you do a good job, you're, you're conscientious, you work hard, you're diligent, you, you earn a good living, because you do those things, your wife and your kids never, ever, ever worry or think about having a roof over their heads or food on the table. That's not insignificant spiritually. That's actually a really big deal. Paul says in Thessalonians, if a man will not work, if someone chooses not to work, they don't eat. That's, that's biblical. Now, if you can't work, that's a different conversation, different sermon series altogether. But Biblically, as a Christ follower, laziness does not get rewarded. Lazy, don't feed the bulldog. You, you, we work if we're followers of Christ. We, we get up and we go, that matters. But then I told him, I said, let's, let's play it out another, let's go out from your home. Let's think about your clients. Now, I, I know you're a committed follower of Christ and I know you, you work with a high degree of integrity and, and ethical boundaries. You're not embezzling any money, are you? He goes, no. I go, that was rhetorical. I know you're not. I said, but I want you to think about what service, and if I can put this term on it, ministry, you provide for your clients. They go to bed every night knowing because you're doing the job that you're doing, over time, they're going to be able to send their kids to college, for example, or when the time comes for them to quit their day-to-day -day job and do something else, they'll be able to do that with some degree of security because of what you're doing every single day right now. That is not spiritually insignificant. You're providing a service and a ministry to these people. I think about school teachers. I had a meeting this week with school district leaders and, and administrators. I, I can't even imagine the job that these people have right now. Some of the snotty things that people say in social media and to each other and put out there. Nobody that goes to our church, but you've seen, you know what I'm talking about. I'm, all I could say to them was thank you for doing what you do. I mean, every single person that was in that room could be doing something so much easier and so much more lucrative, but they have a calling. We may have a disagreement about how they're gonna get it done, about what's being done, but at the end of the day, man, we're grateful for these people who choose to stand in that line every single day. That, that's, that's a calling. That, that is absolutely a ministry. And so again, work as a concept can be, can be endowed with divine dignity and eternal significance. It's our job. It's our privilege and opportunity to, to find that dignity, to to inject it with that purpose. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily change your job. I, I hope that this sermon series doesn't lead a lot of people to resign their jobs or go do something else. My prayer is that 
That may happen, let me say that. But my prayer is that you'll be able to continue doing what you're doing with the people that you're doing it with, with a newfound sense of purpose and mission and power because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you are destroying the wall between sacred and secular. In a a relationship with Christ, there's no such thing. Because of your relationship with Christ, because of your faith that God has given you in grace, everything is sacred. Everything you do matters. Even, Even when you sleep. Think about that for a second. How many of you like a nap? Can I just see a show of hands if you're a... I love a nap. Julie, my wife, she doesn't nap much. I... I don't even know how to respond to that. (laughs) To me, a nap is sacred ground. I love turning on a football game that I don't care about. Volume just low enough to know that it's on. Turning the air conditioner down to about 58. (laughs) Kidding. And just, just, just taking a nap. Doesn't that sound great right now? Hopefully you're not taking a nap right now in the middle of a sermon. (laughs) But God commands us to rest. That's what the Sabbath is. He commands us every week to take a day, a full 24-hour Sabbath to rest in him. For six days you will do your work, but on the seventh day you will rest. Set it apart, keep it holy, because I am holy, God says. So even our rest is sacred. If our rest is sacred, we can rest assured our work is to be sacred as well. There are four things I want you to keep in mind as you work toward a biblical work ethic, as we we make this a part of who we are. Number one, work like it's a gift, not a curse. Work like it's a gift, not a curse. You don't have to go to work. You get to go to work. Now, I know we have to work. We have to eat. We have to put food on the table, all those things. No no question. But remember Genesis. God gave people work before sin entered the picture. When he created Adam and Eve, he put them to work in the Garden of Eden. They were to steward the created order. They were to give the animals names. They were were working, they were being productive as a part of a life that had not been touched or tarnished by sin. So, So work is a gift. It is not part of the curse of humanity. It is a gift from God. We need work. We don't just need to work. We need work. It's imperative that we are productive people. If we follow Christ, you work. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not a clock watcher. You're not one of these people that goes, whoo, 5.30, deuces. you're, You're the best employee you can be. You're the best leader or owner you can be. Because it's a gift. It is a gift to work with and for God. Think about this too. It was the Garden of Eden. It wasn't the Jungle of Eden. Have you ever thought about that? A garden 
is orderly. A jungle is chaotic. A garden is intentional. A jungle is untended. A, a garden is planned, but a jungle just happens. No, God, God invited us into orderly, intentional, deliberate work. It, it's not just Tarzan and Jane swinging through the trees. We're, we're tending God's created order. We are stewards. In Genesis chapter 2, when he said, subdue the creation, the word subdue in the original Hebrew means to manage and tend it, to be a steward of the created order. That's what we're called to. So this is a gift from God. It's not a curse. Number two, we've already alluded to it, but it's important. Work in response to God's grace, not to earn it. Work in response to God's grace, not to earn God's. You, you can't earn the grace of God. You, you'll never be good enough. Matter of fact, this is a gift to give somebody who's sitting next to you right now. Turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face. Tell him, you're not good enough. Now, some of you may have enjoyed that too much. But, but I want you to think about how liberating that really is. It's not about making sure our pluses outweigh our minuses. The grace of God is the foundational fact of our faith. So the grace of God means that I am working in response to it, not to earn it. If I'm working to earn the grace of God, then, man, I got to make sure that I cross every T and dot every I. And if I make a mistake, boop, guess what? We've already made the mistake. You've made it. I've made it. It's sin. I've got it. You've got it. We, we are born with this spiritually predetermined condition. We are all spiritual descendants of Adam and Eve in the original sin. And, and that sin, that sin is, is, is brokenness. Brokenness in our lives, brokenness in our relationships, brokenness in this world. And, and I, think, I think that's what makes grace actually really and truly amazing. When we understand just how broken we are, we appreciate that much more the amazing grace of God. And we're, we're reminded that it's, it's from him. It's because he loves us. He is for us. He is with us. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He, he didn't just look down from on high and go, man, they messed up. He stepped into the middle of my mess and he said, I want to clean it up. I, I want to I correct every wrong. I want to forgive every sin. And when you, when you really start to grasp grace, and then, then you want to reciprocate. You just want to work in response to that. That's when you begin working for and with God. We become collaborators, co-laborers with God. Whatever we're doing, wherever we go. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Number three, we work to redeem, not to retire. If the goal of your career is retirement, you're not aiming high enough. You, you were not put on this earth to have a career so that one day you could go play golf every day. 
Can I tell you how many people I have known over the years who maybe career-wise, professionally hit a home run at, I don't know, pick a number, 45, 50 years old, and they were done financially. They, they, their grandchildren couldn't have spent all the money that they had made. Hey, God bless them. That's, knock yourself out. That's great. But the ones that I know who decided to go play golf, which by, golf is fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking golf. I don't play it because it hurts my faith and it damages my witness. But <laughs> if the goal is golf, you're not aiming high enough. You're not put here to just hang out. We need to be productive. We work to redeem. Remember, we're working for and with God. God is in the redeeming business. He redeems people. He redeems creation. He redeems damage. He redeems it and he makes it whole and he invites us to be a part of that. I think about every single person that we saw baptized today in this service and the one before. Every single one of them, every one of them had somebody in their lives who said, I, I, want, you, I want you to know how much God loves you. I want, you to, I want you to understand what I've been given. I want, to, I want to share with you the grace that I've been given. I want to give it to you. The word grace in the New Testament is the word charis. Say charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. It's where we get the word charisma. Man, she's got charisma. He's got charisma. They, they just got it. Well, grace is the charis of God. And, and when he when he gives it to you and when you own it, you, you want to give it to somebody else. You want to you invite somebody to come with you. You're like, man, I, th- you won't believe what I found out about God. It'll knock you out of your seat. And so we work to redeem. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't retire from your current profession, that maybe you do something different. Maybe you begin working in a different way. I think about some of the retirees who are part of the Lake Hills Church family the retirees that we've seen over the years who have given up their Wednesday mornings to to be a part of our children's ministry. As we've said for years, we don't do daycare around here. We we do children's ministry. And I think about the men and the women who have spent time with children, just letting them know that they were welcome and cared for so their parents could come to a class or a service and, and learn and grow closer to God. But the kids... The kids were in an environment that they wanted to be a part of. They were, they were taught that, that God loved them unconditionally, and they were taught it from the first time a parent dropped them off because somebody was working to redeem and not just to retire, not just to go hang out. Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, work not only cares for creation, but also directs and structures it. The purpose of work is to create a culture that honors God and enables people to thrive. That's the purpose of work. To create a culture that honors God and enables people to thrive. Which dovetails perfectly into number four. Work as worship not as an obligation. Treat your work, whatever it may be. Maybe you're getting up and going to school tomorrow. How many of you have a test this week? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, first of all, 
better you than me. <laughs> Second of all, what if you treated that test and the preparation for that test as an opportunity to worship God and not just an obligation to something to get through? What if those of us who maybe are out of school saw the alarm clock on Monday morning as an opportunity to worship God and not just an obligation, an opportunity to go into the marketplace, an opportunity to, to deal differently with that guy in your office who is a pain in the neck because you're going to worship God in the way you interact with him instead of an obligation, I have to. How would that change the way you feel when the clock goes off tomorrow morning? This is our opportunity. It is only within the context of the gospel, a relationship with Christ, that work becomes a divine appointment and not just an obligation. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but it is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Nobody walks into church and says, hey, good morning. I'd like to tell you what I earned from God this week. In my prayer time, I discovered something new and I earned the favor of God. Here's my card, call if you have any questions. Nobody does that. Man, we, we, we come into this together as the family of faith the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free in terms of status. Now, there are people who are Jewish and Greek. There are, in fact, male and female. There is, in fact, free and not free. But in Christ, the ground is level at the foot of the cross because of grace I want to just kind of put a bow on this message, if I can, by, by going back to the beginning. I want, I want to just read for you a few verses that preceded Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. The Bible says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, our sin. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. And in this moment, I want to make sure that, that we all understand the reality. The reality of life BC, before Christ. Before Jesus, we are dead in our sin. Our brokenness is something that we can't fix. 
no amount of money, no job title, no human relationship, no amount of status, power, prestige. But God, but God, but God who is rich in mercy makes us alive in Christ. If you're here today or maybe watching online and you have never stepped into that reality, you've never chosen to have that faith in him, to receive that invitation, to accept it, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just right where you are, just silently pray. Just silently talk to God from your heart to his and say something like this in your own words from your heart to his. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so I confess my sin to you. I admit my brokenness. But Lord, I... Accept your forgiveness. And I am choosing in this moment to trust you more than I trust myself. I will follow you from this moment forward. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. you would just remain with your heads bowed for another moment it's a sacred moment but if that was your prayer this is the greatest day of your life if that was your prayer and if you're watching online if you would just let us know there on the screen there, there's a place for you to indicate if you're here in the room and, and that was your moment, I want you to know we want to help with what's next. It's our privilege. It's our responsibility as a church. And so the best way that we can do that is if you would on your way out today, just make the time briefly, just a minute. Stop and let someone know at the hub underneath the big front porch out here, say, hey, today was my day. I prayed that prayer at the end of the service. And that'll just allow us, like I said, to help, to come alongside at a pace that works for you. But we want you to know that we love you and we're excited for you. If you did pray that prayer, would you just quietly raise your hand as our heads are bowed for just another moment? Your hand in the air is just a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made to follow Christ. And so as a church, as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that. And our family tradition around here is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.